All right, well, happy Sunday, Mountain View. Uh, you excited, excited to dig into the Word together? All right, well, find your place in the book of Acts. We're going to be in the very last chapter, Acts 28. Um, how many of you can finish this prayer? Are you ready? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's next? Thy kingdom come. Some of you just keep on rocking and rolling. You got it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. What? Okay, your kingdom come. I wonder if we know what we mean when we pray for the kingdom of God to come. I'm going to dig into that reality today uh, because what we've been reading and studying through, through, through 28 chapters now, is the coming of the kingdom. And so I want to dig into this idea with a message I'm titling, The Good News of the Kingdom. You ever been involved in something that while it's happening, um, you just know it's something special? Like you think um, this in your mind, you think this is going to go down as some of the best times of my entire life. I just this is so special. I know I don't I'm never going to forget this. You ever been involved in something like that? Well, I'm believing and trusting that we as a church are moving into a season like that. That God is doing some super cool things here. And I'm not just trying to stir up some kind of uh, great anticipation. I'm just trusting that the Lord is building his kingdom. And he's allowing us to be a part of it. Right? That blows my mind. That we get to be a part of the kingdom work of King Jesus. Well, I'm confident that everyone hanging around the Apostle Paul felt that way. They, they knew, man, what I'm doing right now is not only the most amazing thing that's ever happened in my life, but Luke even thought, somebody needs to write all this down. And he started writing and keeping a record, keeping track of all these events because he just knew this is an incredible time. And God is moving in a way that not only do we not want to forget it, but we need to tell the story in the days to come. And so um, the Holy Spirit recorded through Luke about 30 years of the birth of the church and the unstoppable progress of the kingdom of God. And we've been on that journey now for um, what will be 50 sermons by the time we finish. We're almost to the end of a pretty thorough look at the book of Acts. And I'm going to be honest with you, I'm a little sad about it. I don't know about you. Some of you are probably like, it's time for something new. Uh, but I'm a little sad. I wish there were a few more chapters in the book. But that's the beauty of this book. The stories of the working of the Holy Spirit are still being written, right? Yeah. We get to be a part of the spreading kingdom of God. I know you just got comfortable in your seat. But here at Mountain View, we stand in honor of the reading of God's word. So we stand going to read Acts chapter 28 beginning in verse 11 and and we're going to finish at chapter at verse 24 today one more sermon in Acts next week verse 11 Paul's just been through a shipwreck the the ship crashed at an island called Malta he got out was bitten by a snake ended up uh, probably starting a church on this island stays there for three months most likely proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and We pick up in verse 11. After three months, 
we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Resium. And after one day of south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. When he had come into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you. Now listen here, since it's because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we've received no letters from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are with regard to this sect. We know that everywhere it is spoken against When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Let's pray. Father. We need you today and we trust that this is your word inspired and is useful for teaching and correction and training and righteousness, even in these moments. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you help us today to see the powerful movement of the kingdom of God in this text and in our own lives. We thank you for allowing us to be a part of it. Lord, would you today open someone's heart to the good news of Jesus and bring them into your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So we finally come to Paul's arrival in Rome. It's been chapters now. He's been talking about and dreaming about getting to Rome. Um, He knew that was where he was headed. Jesus promised him that's where he was headed. And finally he arrives. So Jesus promised him that he would testify in Rome just as he did in Jerusalem. And that's exactly what Paul intends to do. Upon his arrival into the greater Roman cities, he's greeted by brothers who welcomed him and provided beautiful hospitality to him. Other brothers heard he was coming. They traveled quite a distance to meet him. And what an encouragement that must have been. Um. I don't know about you, but I, I thank God for these kinds of genuine friendships, real relationships. This is 
one, one place in Scripture that just really emphasizes the significance of genuine relationships in Christ. Like we need each other. We see when Paul arrives in Rome, the brothers meet him and he's encouraged. Uh, the Bible says Luke records that he took courage. And I can't help but think about Jesus's words to Paul in the darkness of that jail cell in Jerusalem. In Acts twenty three eleven. maybe you remember, Jesus met him, came to him in a vision and said, take courage. For just as you've testified about me here in Jerusalem, you will in Rome. And so this moment, maybe when Paul comes in and the brothers greet him and he's they're excited to see him, he's happy to be there. It encourages his spirit. This is just the truth that we all need each other. Right. And to echo what Stephen was saying, we, we are a family. We are a team. Well, Paul is not as warmly received by the religious elite, the Jewish religious leaders in Rome. They keep him at arm's length. They want to hear what's going on with him. They aren't quite sure what to make of him. They've not received any reports of what's going on. But they have heard about this sect, as they call it, this, this Jesus movement that's been going on. They've heard about that. And they want to hear from Paul, a former Pharisee, what this whole thing's all about. So Paul tells them that he's in chains. He's wearing a chain. He uses this expression because of the hope of Israel. Now, there's a lot to dig in here. Um, but on the surface, here's what we want to say. This expression is a, a, a very simple gospel expression for a Jewish audience. They would know exactly what he meant when he says the hope of Israel. What he means is that Jesus is the Messiah King they've hoped for. You see, all of Israel's history has been uh, a pattern of God giving the law, the, the Israelites breaking the law, and then a need for being made right with God, being back in right relationship with God. And that all came through a sacrificial system. But one day the prophets promised there's coming a Messiah and that Messiah is going to make all things right. What Paul is saying is I'm wearing these chains because my hope for Israel has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's the message of the gospel. Now, he says that to this audience to pique their interest. They knew something of that hope. So they set up another meeting and they brought even more people with him. They come back to his house or where he's staying, house arrest. And they give him another opportunity to share. And this is where um, Paul says even more on the subject. The Bible says that he expounded to them. So he's. He's really opening up what he meant by that expression, the hope of Israel. And then um, where I want us to focus today, the kingdom of God. What Paul is saying is that Jesus came as the Messiah. He died in place of sinners. Three days later, he rose from the dead and now he's seated on the throne of heaven as the eternal king on David's throne. Right. This is what Paul is meaning and then he's expounding that to, to them. And I want us to, together to talk. Look at verse 23 in particular. Paul testifies, the Bible says, he testifies to them about the kingdom of God and tries to convince them about Jesus from the law and the prophets. Now, we don't talk much about the kingdom. Maybe it's because it, it seems a bit mystical. Um, 
Maybe it's because it's, it's kind of outside of our cultural construct in the United States. We don't, um, we don't have a monarchy. In fact, that's kind of how we began, as we'll celebrate next Sunday on July 4th, was we claimed our independence from a monarchy, right? We, we don't want a king, honestly. We like our autonomy. And everything in the human heart rejects and even resents authority. Am I, am I telling the truth? Yeah. Yeah. So the idea of a kingdom is a bit repulsive to us. But here's the thing. The kingdom of God is a different kind of kingdom because it has a different kind of king. And our primary citizenship, Christian, listen, your primary citizenship is not here. This is not your home. And your loyalties are not to be given to some candidate or any political party. Your loyalties are to be given to King Jesus. So this place, this place is not our home. We are sojourners, foreigners here, passing through with the beautiful message of hope that there is a greater kingdom and a greater king. His name is Jesus. That's what we're talking about. That's what Paul is proclaiming, that we're citizens of another Kingdom and the eternal king is the Lord Jesus. So let's talk for just a minute about the kingdom of God. All right, I'm going to give you three truths about the kingdom. So if you're uh, writing these down, here they are. The kingdom has a king. The kingdom has a king. These are really basic, right? But I want to dig into it together. So Acts is the second volume of Luke's first work. I want you to look at the Gospel of Luke. Go to Luke chapter 4, and it would be helpful for you to actually turn there in your Bible. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is beginning his ministry. He's been tempted in the wilderness and overcome the temptation of Satan. And then he begins his ministry by preaching in the synagogue. And he comes and he opens the scroll of Isaiah. And from Isaiah 61, he reads a messianic prophecy. What I mean by that is a prophecy about what it'll be like when the Messiah comes. And from Isaiah 61, in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me. That's kingly language, being anointed. Remember, um, David was anointed as king. So we're talking about anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now look at what he does. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant. He sat down. All eyes are fixed upon him. And he began to say to him, this is his sermon. It's real short. Look at what Jesus says. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, maybe when we hear that, we don't know exactly what he means, but they did. What Jesus meant by that is the anointed one who's bringing all these things is me. I'm the Messiah that this has been promising. Now, they knew what he meant by that. Because they responded in verse 22. Isn't this Joseph's son? (laughs) Right? The crowd is like, wait a minute now. I know this boy. I've been seeing him out by Joseph's garage over there. He's working in the wood shop. I I know this kid. Who 
What, who's he think he is? How's he going to stand up and read that prophecy and then say, this, this is about me? How's he going to do that? There's an immediate rejection of Jesus' very first sermon. And it's because he claimed to be the king. So look with me, if you will, at Luke 4, right at the outside, outset. Here's what we learn about the king. If we keep reading, Jesus responds to these doubters. Doubtless, you'll say to me, physician, heal yourself. If you're, if you're this great, well, heal yourself. And then Jesus says this in verse 24. Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows. Look at what he's going to say here. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came all over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow, but not a Jew. Look at what's next. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now, what is he saying here? Well, here's how they respond to it. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Now, he just told them their history, right? He just told them that... um, This good king has always, has always been gracious to outsiders. Listen, this good king has always shown grace to those who are far off. This is who the king is. What do they they respond? Well, this king is also rejected by his own. Verses 28 through 30, they're filled with wrath. They try to take him up to a cliff, throw him over the cliff. Really bad way to end a first sermon. Just just throwing that out there. It's not my first, but let's don't try that, okay? So this did not go well for Jesus. Very first sermon, he's rejected by his own. But look at what happens next. The very next thing he does is he he goes into a town and there's a man who's... uh, Possessed by a demon, Jesus rebuked him, verse 35, saying, Be silent and come out of him. When the demon had been thrown down in their midst, he came out of them, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands unclean spirits. And they come out. And then guess what the spirit, the demon says about Jesus? Look at verse 41. Well, let's look at 40, because now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on them and every one of them, he healed them. And verse 41, and the demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. Now, listen, this is crazy because the people of God have just denied that Jesus is the Messiah, but the demons are declaring The demons, did you know that in the Gospels? The demons are the first to actually declare Jesus' deity. Wild. But they know the truth. They're scared of it. They don't want to mess with it. Jesus' people are trying to kill him. The demons are running for their lives. So we learn that the king is rejected by his own. We learn that the king is declared the son of God by demons. And then... 
Look at verses 42 and 44. We learn something about our king. When it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But Jesus said to them, I must preach. Look at what he says. The good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And here's what we learn about King Jesus. He's on a mission to advance his kingdom. Jesus is on a mission to advance his kingdom. The rest of the gospel and the book of Acts are all telling this story of the advancing of the kingdom of God. And people realizing this man is not an ordinary man. He's the son of God who came to save sinners. And I am one. And I desperately need to surrender my life to this king. And that's the story unfolding as we've read. So the kingdom has a king. Secondly, the kingdom has a people. The kingdom has a people. Now, there's something shocking, almost um, you might say upside down about the kingdom of God and its people. The people saved by this king are some of the most rejected outsiders in all the world. I think about when Jesus first called his disciples, I think it's in Matthew five, he's recruited these disciples and they're beginning this journey of, uh, of following this Messiah and no telling what they thought they were going to do. But you know what the very first thing they did? Jesus let his, put his hands on a leper. One of the most outcasts of all society had this contagious disease and had to shout out unclean. And Jesus says, I know you're unclean. Come here. You put my hand on you, boy. This is the pattern of our king. And his people are usually the most rejected of all people. Think about when Jesus called Matthew to be a disciple. I mean, recruited him right out of a tax collector booth. Matthew, son of Alphaeus, follow me. He's in the middle of taking his own people's money. Lays it down. Okay. Follows Jesus. Right after that, the Pharisees came to him in Luke 5, verse 31. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? They couldn't get over it. They thought, if there's a king coming, surely he's going to be with the elite. Surely he'd want to be with us, is what they thought. But Jesus is having dinner with the riffraff. Jesus answers that question by saying, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, and I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus goes on to say that he's come to save sinners, to lift the hurting, to go to the lowly and the rejected. But the proud, he resists. They reject him. He rejects them. The humble are lifted, but the proud will be brought low is the promise of Scripture. The people of the kingdom of God. Listen, because if you're a Christian, this is you and me. The people of the kingdom are weak, foolish, needy, sinners saved by grace. 
Paul wrote about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. And he said, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. God didn't choose you because you're all that. Okay? Are you with me? God chose you. If you're a follower of Jesus, God chose you because when He's through with you, the world is going to look and go, what in the world happened to that loser? I'm just being honest. I stand before you as a testimony, right? All of you can look at me and go, what guy is him? Like, I knew him. Something. It's all God. This is the way our God chooses. I mean, he, he, he set the pattern with Israel. And now they thought they were special. But Deuteronomy 7, the Lord made it super clear. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 9, He said, I didn't choose you because you were great in number or some special people. I chose you to show my steadfast love and that I'm faithful to keep my promise. God has always had a pattern of choosing the weak and lowly to do great and wonderful things. And the reason is because His primary concern is His glory. The glory of God. He's made glorious by taking a wreck of a person and doing something fantastic with him. Is that your story? Well, that's my story. And our king has a people who are a people who've been transformed from darkness, from weakness, from foolishness into something beautiful. And it didn't happen to us by our own doing. It happened to us by the goodness of King Jesus. I love how Peter explains the people of the kingdom in 1 Peter 2, 10. It's been one of my favorite verses to reference during this study in the book of Acts because we're seeing the people form. And what Peter says about the people is he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Listen. The people of the kingdom are people who were in desperate need of mercy, mercy like we were. We deserved judgment, but in Christ, we've been given mercy. Now, people sometimes get upset at the church because someone in the church disappointed them or or hurt them. They'll say, you know, church people are some of the worst. And I would say to that. They don't know the half of how bad we are. (laughs) That's the truth. The story is grace. Like, yes, I'm the worst. Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. God only saved me to show how big his mercy is. The church is not a cabinet for trophy people. It's a hospital for sinners. And we don't come here because we're perfect. We come here because he is and we need him. Desperately, The king's people, the king's people are people who are needy of the king. And this is why we're here. All of us, if you're a follower of Christ, you've found mercy in King Jesus. And through him, we are called out of darkness into marvelous light. Well, the king, the kingdom has a king, the kingdom has a people and the kingdom has a place. Now, I want to spend a few minutes here. Uh, let's do a little exercise. Close your eyes, if you will. All around the room, close your eyes. Nobody peek. I want you to envision 
What do you see in your mind when I say the word kingdom? What imagery comes into your mind with the idea of a kingdom? You keep your eyes closed for a moment. When you visualize a kingdom, maybe you think of like a castle or warriors or soldiers in some metal, chain metal clothing. Or maybe for you, uh, the imagery is Disney's Magic Kingdom castle. I don't know, right? But we usually envision some kind of place like that. Now open your eyes. That's not it. That's not it now. There's coming a day where some of that will be the case. Streets lined in gold and all those things. But that's not it now. The kingdom now is a place And the kingdom is wherever the king rules and reigns. So listen, if Jesus is king of your heart, the kingdom is wherever you are. If Jesus is king of your life, the kingdom is wherever you go. I want to illustrate this point. In Luke 17, some Pharisees came to Jesus and they wanted to ask him when the kingdom of God would come. And in verses 20 and 21, Jesus answered them by saying, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is. Or, no, there, there's the kingdom. Jesus said, no, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, what did he mean? Well, I take it that he meant wherever the king and his reign exists, The kingdom is there. Jesus is saying, let me tell you something. The kingdom is right here in your midst because the king is here. When Jesus sent out his disciples in Luke chapter 10, he instructed them to bless and heal people. And then say to them, after they worked some miracles, they were to say to the people that they had healed, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Well, this is interesting because if the kingdom is a castle, how do we move that joker? No, no, that's not the way God designed it to be. Peter's going to tell us that each of us, we are living stones. And Jesus is the cornerstone. And he is building a temple, a kingdom for himself of people who are submitted to his rule and his reign. So broadly speaking, you know, we ask the question, what is the place of the kingdom? I would say that broadly speaking, the whole universe, right? is under the rule and reign of our king. Very generally, sovereignly, God is ruling the world. We we read Psalm 103, verse 19, and their scriptures are a plethora that explain how God is in control of everything in this world. Even earthly leaders are established by him, Romans 13. Even kings, he directs their heart like, like a river in the palm of his hand. What Proverbs 21 teaches. So there is an aspect, broadly speaking, where this king is reigning and his kingdom is the whole world. But specifically, and this is the way we're talking this morning, Jesus' kingdom, as he said in John 18 with Pilate, that conversation, my kingdom is not of this world. 
I'm not building a big building. I'm not going to reside there. No, no. My kingdom is going to be in the ruling and reigning in the hearts of men and women. It's a spiritual rule of God over the heart and lives of those who willingly surrender to Him. And I'm convinced that's what Paul was doing. In the book of Acts, in chapter 28, when he comes before this group of Roman Jewish, well, Jewish leaders in Rome, he says to them, or the, the scripture says he's testifying to the kingdom of God. What he's saying is the kingdom is coming and people everywhere are surrendering their lives to King Jesus. He's telling the stories. Sadly, today, many believe they can have Jesus as Savior without submitting to Him as King. The Bible knows of no such salvation. Listen, this is eternally important. To be saved by Him is to surrender to Him. There is no distinction. You don't get one without the other. Jesus either takes over as king or he has nothing to do with you. Oh, but our king is not a tyrant. He's not any king like you've ever known before. He's a good king. Just this week, uh, my daughter has been at, at two vacation Bible schools, and so she's been hearing a lot of gospel messages and so just this week I picked her up from a vacation Bible school and we were driving home and she uh, the other kids are in the back and she just looks at me and she says daddy I want to be saved I said oh baby that's wonderful tell me what you mean by that and that started a conversation that we're continuing now for days but that conversation is way more than hey pray this prayer and um, you know, say these words and you'll be saved. No, no. I want my baby to know that to be saved means to surrender her life to King Jesus. And He's now the boss. He's the master. He's the ruler over all of your life. I said, baby, are you ready to surrender your life to King Jesus and let Him rule and lead over you? And she said, I think so. And I said, are you sure? Because I don't think you're really ready for me to rule over you like that. Just being real. We're having good, honest conversations. I want you to know, like, this is parents. Dig into these things. Speak the truth to your children. Don't just go quickly to the baptism. Let's speak the truth to our babies and make sure they know what salvation means. Surrender. There's no such thing as being saved and He's not your Lord. It's not true. Let's don't sell some easy believism that's not the gospel. We tell the truth. Jesus is king or you are. Which will it be? This is the truth. And as people of the kingdom, we are in the kingdom and the kingdom is in us. Meaning, wherever we go, we are spreading the good news of this good king. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3 that he could not enter the kingdom unless he was born again. That had to be a rude awakening for a Pharisee of his stature. A teacher of the law. And here's this 
Nazarene carpenter, teacher, telling him, you're not going to get to the kingdom unless you're born again. Matthew 4, Jesus began preaching there and he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So we come into the kingdom by way of new birth. We're born again. And through repentance and faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I just want to take a few minutes right now and flesh this out. We're almost done. Just a few minutes right here. In Jesus, we have a king who loves us. He came to give his life to save us from sin. He's coming to make all things new. And in Acts 28, when Paul's talking about this, he's testifying the good news of the kingdom in Rome. It says from morning till evening, he's telling them of what he had seen and experienced. That's the word testify, right? I saw it. I experienced it. I heard it. I'm going to tell you the stories. So he's sharing firsthand stories of King Jesus. I, I wonder if he told them about the miracles at Iconium or maybe as they preach the gospel, the, the crippled man in Lystra stands up and jumps and runs around. Maybe he told them about the slave girl in Philippi who was a slave and was uh, being used for profit by men. She was given prophecies for people and they were using her. She was a slave twice, enslaved to demons and enslaved to some cruel men. One word from Jesus' apostle and she was set free from both. Or maybe the Philippian jailer who, even though Paul was the man in prison, the jailer is the one who needed to be set free. He and his whole household believe and are baptized. He went from wounding Paul to washing his wounds. Isn't that wild? Maybe Paul's telling them these kinds of stories. What we know is that King Jesus changes people and it's inside out kind of transformation. It's to take a dead heart and make it alive. He's a king that conquers the sinful heart and gives eternal life to all who trust in him. So here, here's what I need us to know. Jesus is working. He's working through his people. And as the good news of King Jesus is proclaimed, some will hear and believe. That's what we see in verse 24. Some were convinced, but then it says that some disbelieved. And that's always the case. It's the good news of King Jesus. He came to save sinners. His salvation is available to anyone. You come into his kingdom through repentance and faith, trusting that Jesus alone saves and that he is the supreme king over all. You repent. Listen, this is important. You repent. That means a change of mind that results in a change of action. You repent of all your sin and surrender your whole life to him. It doesn't mean you'll never sin again. It just means that you hate your sin and you're working to kill it. You agree with God about it. Now, let me ask you this. This is a real pointed question. Answer in your heart. Is there any sin you refuse to repent of? By the way, you don't get to determine what is sin. God does that in his word. And so when the Bible tells you that you're sinning, I want to ask you, are you determined to repent or resist? A sinner that refuses to repent of sin is rejecting the rule of the king. You cannot cling to your sin and the Savior at the same time. 
Some sobering scriptures on that point. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? He will not be Lord in name only. In Matthew 7, 14, Jesus said, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. It's narrow. It's hard. And the people who find it are few. Matthew 7, 21, one of the scariest text in all the Bible, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, using that word, right, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Those who enter heaven do the father's will. I mean, these are basic statements about the fact that salvation equals surrender to King Jesus. And we can't redefine it any other way. So let me just Finish with this summation of what it means. The good news of the kingdom. Here it is. There is a kingdom. Jesus is the king. He took up his crown as king by bearing your cross at Calvary. Though he was sinless, he died in the place of sinners. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might redeem us to God. He has risen from the dead and King Jesus is Savior and Lord. Anyone, anyone who comes to him in total surrender will be welcomed into his kingdom. Amen. That's the good news of the kingdom. And everywhere you go, Christian, take that gospel with you. Let's pray.